this is The Guardian. This episode contains descriptions of conflict and strong language that some listeners may find distressing. Please listen with care. Let's go to the beginning. Where does this come from? Well, it begins with hearing those whispers that were being passed around the Special Forces community around Ben Robert Smith. This is Nick McKenzie. He's an investigative reporter for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald and for 60 Minutes. He's one of the most awarded investigative journalists in this country. To be honest, I didn't believe the allegation initially. And I thought it did sound like an allegation that must have been forced up through jealousy, imagination, people wanting to just talk shit. There's a lot of shit talking in the regiment. I think the wellspring of rumours started to come up after we left Afghanistan. I wasn't the only one hearing this. I think Defence was hearing it as well. And this is Chris Masters. We wondered what was going on. Masters is a doyen of Australian journalism, with a storied career spanning decades. More than 10 years ago, Masters was the first Australian journalist to be embedded with Australian Special Forces troops for a book he was writing called No Frontline. Masters was among the first people outside of the SAS to hear the rumours that had, until that time, been circulating only inside the regiment. At the beginning, it felt very lonely. It felt like Nick McKenzie and myself were the only people who thought this was important. Together, Masters and McKenzie set out to substantiate what were, at that stage, barely believable rumours, trying to piece together what had actually happened amidst the conflicting accounts, the foggy and fading memories, and in some cases, the deliberate misinformation. They wanted to understand, to get a clear picture of what actually happened on the ground in Afghanistan. And this was a monumental task. Because think about it, the the most decorated soldier in Australia, the most decorated Afghan veteran in the Commonwealth, is supposed to have got a civilian handcuffed, led him to the edge of a cliff and kicked him off and then executed him or engaged or participated in the execution at the bottom of the cliff. It just sounded, I mean, to say it now sounds not believable. They were up against a code of silence within the SAS. This is an arcane and secretive institution. And to begin with, no one was willing to talk. Even the guys who hated the idea that Afghan civilians were being murdered. Even they also had to balance those concerns with a concern for their own reputation and the reputation of the regiment. So nobody really wanted to talk about it. And they were up against what perhaps represented an even bigger challenge, a two-metre-tall roadblock in the form of the reputation of Ben Robert Smith, VC, MG. A reputation burnished by his battlefield exploits and draped in the semi-sacred cloak of the Anzac legend, a veil which shielded him from scrutiny. It ended up being the classic contest. We speak truth to power. And this was a battle between truth and power. But over the course of years, Masters and Mackenzie kept asking questions, kept following leads, flying across the country and ultimately across the world. They interviewed, often repeatedly, initially reluctant subjects who gradually came to be convinced of the rightness, the imperative to speak up. We knew it was happened somewhere in southern Afghanistan, according to the rumour, and it was a rumour, and it was something that was so remarkable and ugly and grim and, frankly, improbable that I thought, let's see if we can either 
prove or disprove this, at least check it out. And that was a matter of speaking to people in the SAS and asking them, what have you heard? Have you heard this rumour? Yes, they had. Slowly, piece by piece, the pair built an understanding of what had actually transpired on those dusty battlegrounds. Slowly, surely, and with an open mind, they pursued the truth. Where did it take place? We find a name of a village, Darwan, in southern Afghanistan. We pin down a date of a mission this cliff-kicking is supposed to have happened. So just over time, weeks, months, and ultimately over many years, developing sources within the Special Forces community who knew about the incident, and in fact, people who were there on the day, and also understanding there's other people involved in this. There's the villagers. So if this has happened, there's every chance a villager from Darwan has seen it. Until finally, this grim picture became clear, casting dark clouds over Ben Robert Smith's glittering and previously unimpeachable reputation. On the moment where we realised, hang on, there is weight to this, is when eyewitness accounts on different continents from different people who had never spoken to each other began to match. What did this all mean? It meant it was true. Previously on this podcast, you heard that Ben Robert Smith, VC, Australia's most decorated living soldier, sued three Australian newspapers, The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Canberra Times for defamation in the federal court over a series of articles he claimed falsely portrayed him as a war criminal, accusing him of murdering unarmed civilians in Afghanistan and of an act of domestic violence. The newspapers defended their reporting by journalists Nick McKenzie, Chris Masters and David Rowe as true. Robert Smith consistently denied all wrongdoing. But a federal court found that on the balance of probabilities, Ben Robert Smith, Victoria Cross recipient, was a war criminal who murdered unarmed civilians, ordered subordinate soldiers to execute prisoners and lied to cover up those deaths. A judge found he was complicit in the murder of four Afghan civilians while he served in Afghanistan in an Australian uniform. Robert Smith has consistently denied all wrongdoing and has now lodged an appeal against his defeat in the defamation action. His appeal will be heard before the full bench of the federal court at a date to be fixed. I'm Ben Doherty, and I sat down with Nick McKenzie in Melbourne and later with Chris Masters in Sydney. From Guardian Australia, this is Ben Robert Smith versus the media. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. 
Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You really went in this into this, it seems, with an open mind, with a sort of open journalistic endeavor. There wasn't a vendetta. There wasn't a desire to tear anyone down or there wasn't any specific outcome being sought. It was a, it was a real mission of discovery. My editor at the time said, you know, going after this allegation, trying to f- figure out if it's true or not, is akin to trying to shoot Bambi, which is basically like this is something you do not do mm. or you do at great cost. But ultimately, uh, if it was true, we needed to find that out and understand that that truth probably meant that there was a much darker truth about not just Ben Robert Smith, but about pockets of the SASR that needed to be exposed uh, and explored. And the other thing that really kept me going, and I'm sure the same with Chris Masters, is that it was the brave men of the SAS who were telling us much of what we were learning. So these are guys who'd fought alongside Ben Robert Smith. They were veterans of many tours themselves. They'd put themselves on the line. They were decorated themselves. And yet they were so appalled by what they'd seen Ben Robert Smith do in Afghanistan, they felt compelled to speak to an investigative journalist because they did not want the matter to be swept under the rug. They had the sense that there was some wrongs that needed righting. Perhaps the most extraordinary rumour which surrounded Ben Robert Smith related to a mission to the southern Afghan village of Darwan in 2012. At the end of that mission, Robert Smith was said to have marched a handcuffed man named Ali Jan to stand above a 10 metre high precipice, falling away to a dry riverbed below. Ali Jan, he was a farmer, he was a father, I met his kids, I met his wife, they are human beings, they are like my kids. He was the guy who was kicked off a cliff, he was the guy who was murdered at the bottom of that cliff. How can you not meet someone's kids who you believe to have been murdered, understanding that the person responsible for his murder is doing everything within his power and using unlimited resources and money to cover that, that crime up? How can you not meet those victims? And they say, they said to me, the wife said to me, and his brother-in-law said to me, where is justice? What is the Australian government doing? With the defamation trial now concluded, the court found this was more than just rumour. The newspapers have proven on the balance of probabilities this was true. The federal court found Robert Smith walked forward and kicked the man in the chest, sending him falling backwards over the cliff and striking the cliff face with his face as he fell. The man survived the fall. He tried to sit up in the dry creek bed, but he was seriously injured. Robert Smith then allegedly ordered two subordinate soldiers to drag him to a nearby field where one of the junior soldiers was further ordered to shoot him dead. The order was followed and a radio placed on the dead man's body to justify his killing, to portray him as a scout for the Taliban. Justice Anthony Basanko, the judge presiding over this trial, found Robert Smith was conscious that the killing of Ali Jan was unlawful and he found that Robert Smith lied to the court about how the man died. How can Ali Jan go to collect some firewood for his family, mill some flour and buy some shoes for his daughter, never come home, and the people responsible for his murder get away with it? And that was the question that was burning, and we wanted it answered. And and the only way to answer it was to find out who did it and find the proof and find the evidence, and then having found that, to publish and then to hold the system to account. The incident at Darwin became one of the main and most dramatic allegations made against Ben Robert Smith. But that wasn't the beginning 
I'd heard that Ben Robert Smith was a bully, you know, was was a polarising figure. But even then, it really wasn't a story about war crimes. You know, it was a story about truth and the battlefield. Chris Masters' investigation began looking into an earlier operation in 2006, during which an Afghan teenager was shot by Robert Smith's patrol on a mountaintop in Korangar. During that mission, an SAS soldier, known before the court as Person 1, raised concerns over the young man being killed. He was unarmed, Person 1 said, and did not pose any threat to the Australian soldiers who were on what was supposed to be a clandestine surveillance mission. After that mission, Person 1 was subjected to a campaign of bullying by Robert Smith over years within the regiment. I heard the story about Person 1 from his father and then extraordinary coincidence a couple of years later I'm at a function sitting next to person two and and he confirms what I'd already heard and that at that point I knew that I had questions to put to Ben Robert Smith. More and more sources were coming forward with recollections inconsistent with those given by Ben Robert Smith about a mission for which he was awarded a significant medal, the Medal for Gallantry. But at this stage Masters wasn't investigating war crimes he was trying to reconcile these competing versions of events, as he saw it, differing recollections of war. Uh, one of the soldiers who was there said one of the reasons he complained was he said he, he didn't join the regiment to shoot an unarmed teenager in the back. And then Robert Smith and another soldier got a, a big medal for it, a medal for gallantry, and it just seemed that we had to explore it, and that's why I ended up sitting in front of, uh, of Ben. Tell us about that interview. This was in Canberra. It was in the Rose Garden. It strikes me, reading the book, you walked away from that interview with more questions rather than, than, than questions answered. It was a very unusual exchange. It was. It was, yeah. And I think, I, I think about it a lot and I think that I wonder how it would have gone if Ben had said to me, yes, Chris, those guys have a different view of what occurred back in 2006, but so what? Every soldier in every battle comes away from it with a different account of what occurred. It, it's what they call the fog of war. And I've got nothing against those soldiers. I know they they have a, a different point of view, but, you know, so what? Let's get on with it. I wonder if he'd have said that. I wonder whether the whole thing might have gone away. But he didn't. He arced up, got very angry. He started to bag not just those two soldiers, but everybody else that he presumed had been speaking against him. He was wrong about a lot of that stuff. But certainly the end result of that very tense meeting was me thinking, this is not a man with nothing to hide. How did the stories land when you published in 2018? What was the immediate reaction and response to these extraordinary stories? Oh, I mean, there was a collective, like, what the F? I think from everybody in Australia, from from politicians, from people in the media, from punters, from people in the military, I think it was seen as an extraordinarily brave bit of journalism or an extraordinarily foolhardy piece of journalism. There was no questioning how high the stakes were. People knew of me and Chris, and they knew that we took our jobs as journalists seriously. We wouldn't report things lightly, and we must have hard evidence behind the scenes to back up what we were putting in the paper. But people also believed in Ben Robert Smith as a, as a war hero, and they thought there's no way he's done this. You know, within hours, literally, there were front page 
pushes back from Ben Robert Smith in rival newspapers aimed at demeaning and deriding our journalism and sowing the seeds of doubt that everything we'd written was false. Legal threats were, were fast and heavy, and you know, a vast amount of people in the military community just did not believe the stories. And as a result, they felt compelled to write to us and tell us that we're scumbags and cowards and there was threats of violence and it was very, very unpleasant. It's classic investigative journalism, isn't it? You have to attend to the stories that that people need rather than want. And it's, it's often unpleasant news. So we just got attacked uh, right and left uh, on social media. You know, how dare you, the sacred digger can do no wrong. All of those arguments about how tearing down the national hero, what's the national benefit in it? This is fog of war stuff. Yes, mistakes are made on the battlefield. But how can you, from the comfort of your own lounge chair, be second guessing what occurs on the battlefield? I mean, last night I got an email that says, Dear Nick, I hope you get uh, run over by a bus, Gary. That happens all the time. But a lot more people believe now the federal court has found what we reported is true than back then. And I understand back then people being confused because Ben Robert Smith was pushing and funding a very expensive public relations campaign with lots of supporters in the media and the military willing to run that campaign. He was a very, very good liar. He told a very, very good story and he told it very, very well. So the fact that military veterans were really angered at us is not surprising. And in some respects, that's the hazard of the job. It's funny though, now I've had military vets, guys who've served in Iraq, Afghanistan, even from, even Vietnam, contact me and say, hey, I was one of the blokes giving you shit back in the day, but I want to thank you now for writing the truth. I realise that it is the truth. And I realise Ben Robert Smith does not stand for what I stand for as an Australian soldier, which is you know, I'm, I'll fight fair, I'll fight brave, I'll fight hard, and I'll be unrelenting and unforgiving if you're a Taliban or a jihadist. But I'm not going to kick a civilian with his handcuffs on off a cliff because that's what Australian soldiers do not do. It's still to this day a hard case to make. It's almost as if people think that if you're wearing an Australian uniform, it can't have been a war crime. I have to say, well, you know, we didn't like it when the Japanese were bayoneting Australian prisoners to death on the Burma Rail. Why, why is this different? You describe Ben Robert Smith as the sort of living embodiment of the Anzac legend. Now, national myths are important, they're ever-present, but is there a danger when they become unimpeachable that anything that you, you wrap in the sort of sacred cloak of Anzac becomes unchallengeable? Is that where we start to get in, into problems when people make the arguments about your reporting that oh, we, we shouldn't be tearing down these national heroes? Well, yeah. I mean, the soldiers know themselves better than anybody that myth can get you killed. If you have an unrealistic appreciation of your own capability as a soldier, as a nation, you know, you're going to get yourself into mighty trouble. And that's the problem with the Anzac legend. Uh, the proposition that we have some sort of innate warrior skills is, is a dangerous one. I think truth is far more important. The clinging to the myth always bothered me. It's always bothered a lot of historians as well. But it's interesting, I think, that it was the first draft historians that really challenged the proposition that it may be a mistake to think that that seven-foot-tall and bulletproof warrior image can come to life in the form of someone like Ben Robert Smith. You sat in court most days. Ben Robert Smith sat in court almost every day. He had a regular spot by the window. You had a regular spot at the back of the bar table. Every now and then in court, we would notice 
not interplay between you, but you catch each other's eye and those sorts of things. What was it like sitting in the room with a man you'd accused of war crimes and a man who'd stood up and publicly said, no, this never happened and was calling you a liar? What was that like? To see Ben Robert Smith and to watch him, and I guess we were communicating through body language. He knew who I was. I knew who he was. And and I wanted him to know that I, I, like, I don't fear Ben Robert Smith. I'm not scared of the truth. And we are here to fight for our journalism. And so uh, that's what we did. And I'm prepared to stand up to him. And I'm not saying physically. He would absolutely, obviously, he's twice my size. He's won a Victoria Cross. He's been to war. I've done none of those things. But I think as a journalist, I was proud of the work we had done. I thought it was important and I wasn't going to um, back down from it. But more than that, in court, to me, it seemed clear that he was trying to give our key witnesses the filthy eye and to stare them into submission and remind them that you walk through that court and you've served with me in the SES, you are betraying me. And I'm going to use every inch of my willpower in this court by staring through you, through right into your eyes. This is my last chance to convince you to stick with me. So many of the witnesses were reluctant to be there. They didn't want to be in that courtroom. They were there under force of subpoena and they were giving evidence, as you say, against people who had been lifelong friends who they'd served with. This was incredibly difficult and tumultuous for them. But you, you mentioned in the book that a lot of them found it's cathartic in the end. You know, you, you, you talk about the healing power of truth. There, 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 was, there was something in that for those witnesses who came to court? The ones that had the moral courage to tell the truth were people of substantial character. And I think that character showed when they got in the witness box. And it was gratifying for Nick and I to learn later on that uh, some of them found it cathartic, felt a lot better for having got this off their chest. That was a relief to us too, because, you know, we'd actually lured them into the witness box. We'd put them in that position where they, they had to face up to a huge amount of punishment not for anything that they'd ever published, but stuff that we'd published, mm. you know. So we did feel a sense of responsibility and, and, as it turned out, some relief. I'm really interested in what the personal toll has been like to have this trial sort of hanging over your head, this sort of Democlean sword over your head for, you know, for five years now. Yeah, well, I've had a lot of it in my career, Ben, you know, I, I sort of I talk about my death by a thousand courts. <laughs> I, I, I was hardened to some degree because I'd been through long defamation trials before and I, I'd actually recognised that after a while you become a victim of your own self-pity, you know. It's very lonely, it's torturous. Uh, you've got to keep working as a journalist, but at the same time you've got this court case to deal with. You wake up every, every day with it hovering somewhere in the distance. You're not that confident because we never feel the courts are on our side. They judge us pretty harshly. So there's a lot riding on it. Next the pursuit of truth, and the high bar to proving it. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
I'm Ben Doherty, and you're listening to Ben Robert Smith versus the media. Having spent years reporting this story, and after having the courage to publish these extraordinary allegations, Mackenzie and Masters' biggest battle was still ahead of them. To defend their journalism, they had to prove what they'd reported was true, something they were always confident had been right, but that was a difficult thing to prove to the satisfaction of a court of law. The pressure was extreme and immense, and for obvious reasons. And if we weren't basically shitting ourselves the whole way, then we wouldn't have been human. And we were shitting ourselves the whole way. But, you know, shitting yourself and and fearing the the end of your career and worrying about whether the money spent will cost other journalists jobs and all the damage you'll cause to your papers and all the damage that'll be caused to your SAS whistleblowers who've believed in you to fight for them, believing that they'll all be heard if there is an injustice, if the truth doesn't win, is also extremely motivating. And so we never stopped finding evidence. And this is the thing that I think Ben Robert Smith didn't countenance. He thought that he'd sue us, and with Kerry Stokes behind him, we would be so terrified of that huge amount of power and money, we would just wilt away. We didn't do that. The main thing about journalism is you you finish what you start. And this was a tram that we just couldn't get off. We had to ride it through. There was a terrific benefit in the fact that there were two of us so that we could share the burden of it, but also share the investigative load as well. It ended up being the classic contest. We speak truth to power. And this was a battle between truth and power. We just kept digging as journalists and finding new things. So what did we find? We found that he'd buried USBs in a pink kid's lunchbox in his backyard that contained critical evidence for our court case. We actually located the man he used to send the threatening letters to one of our witnesses. We found out who he was. We subpoenaed him to court. He came and told the truth. We did all these things. We just never stopped. And the other critical thing is this. Ben Robert Smith thought that he could scare anyone into his life into submission. He had been such a terrifying, bastardizing, bullying figure his whole life, no one had ever stood up to him. But geez, he created a lot of enemies. So people from Channel 7, journalists and and others in the company, people in the military and many people in the military, including the SAS and ex-friends, all sorts of people began to reach out to us and say, you know what? Ben Robert Smith did this to me or told me this or put this evidence there or here or under a rock in his back bloody garden. And all those people who knew Robert Smith for who he was began to help us. And so the evidence grew and grew and grew. I sensed this element of frustration that you knew you were right, as as you said before, that the truth was there and that you had the truth on your side, but there remained this underlying fear that you wouldn't be able to prove it to the standard required by the court. I mean, all the way through that trial, you remained nervous about the outcome. We knew we were right, because, and we knew we were right when we published the stories. We'd never have published those stories unless we were certain that we were right. But proving it in a court of law is an entirely different thing. And it's one thing for an SAS soldier to confide in you as a confidential source, knowing you'd go to jail before revealing them. And it's another thing for an SAS soldier to go to court as a witness and in the fierce scrutiny of cross-examination testify against Ben Robert Smith. And there were many moments in the court case where we thought that our witnesses, some of our key witnesses weren't coming. Mm. Our most central witness, the witness to the cliff kicking, he was meant to be coming initially. Tickets were booked, sitting in court, and Dean Leverton, our lawyer, comes to me and says, I've got to tell you something, and he pulls me aside. And ultimately, I learned that he's not coming. He's too uh, unwell. And our key witness is gone. And 
at that very moment, Ben Robert Smith is testifying very powerfully and eloquently in court, and I'm there with my head is spinning, and I know there is no chance without this witness we will win this core allegation. That happened over and over again. And until I saw that witness and other men of the SES actually walk into court before the judge, took to the stand, said the oath, and then said what we knew to be the truth, until that came out of their mouths, you had no idea whether they were going to walk into court and cover up for their brother soldier. And Anthony Bisanko, the judge in the case, never gave anything away. Seriously, the most emotive he was was the occasional arched eyebrow. Mm. Uh, I had no idea whether he favoured our case or Ben Robert Smith's case. And as we were waiting for his judgment, my lawyer, Dean, said to me afterward, were you making a funny sound? And I said, yeah, I was hyperventilating. Such was my my panic because we were going to make history that day. We were going to go down as the worst journalist in the history of Australia who had done the worst bit of journalism and sullied a war hero and would be forever mocked, degraded, attacked, and rightly so. Or we were going to make history by exposing Ben Robert Smith as the most notorious war criminal in the nation's history. This trial has ended in vindication for your reporting with Chris Masters, but it has been five years and it's been a difficult five years, sleepless nights, extraordinary anxiety, you know, hours and hours with lawyers, the the sort of stresses of that entire period sort of come through the book incredibly strongly. You've paid a significant price for for pursuing this story. You know, it's, there's all these carcasses on the edge of the road that Ben Robert Smith has, has run over. There's the guys in the SAS who've, who he blooded, who forced to murder people, and their lives are destroyed. There's the SAS witnesses and, and whistleblowers who he tried to destroy and he's, he's attacked. Some of their lives have been really harmed. Their careers really hurt. There are the women in Ben Robert Smith's life who continue to pay a price. And I would not wish what I endured through this case upon my worst worst enemy either. It's taken a huge chunk of my of my time, my personal life. Uh, it's affected my mental health. Yeah, you say we've indicated. It's not a sense of satisfaction. I don't feel happy. I feel relieved. It's a very different thing. You know, and I still have nightmares about this, and I'll never get over it. And it has it been? There's nothing pleasant about a single part of this experience. And there were many times I thought, I wish I'd never done this story because it's been horrible. No one who's part of this hasn't had their mental health or their family life affected adversely. You know, and what a pity, because it never had to have happened. Ben Robert Smith sued us. He chose to fight this. He chose to bring it to court. He chose to force all those men of the SAS to endure the trauma of court testimony. He chose to force the women in his life, the ex-women in his life, to undergo that courtroom trauma. And it doesn't just pass once the courtroom's over. It, st- it stays with you. That's what he's done to people. Let's talk about those soldiers of the SAS because you mentioned them. They spoke to you about what they'd seen, about what they'd done, and you talked about them on the steps of the federal court and you said, you know, these are the brave men of the SAS who've been vindicated today, who spoke out and told the truth. They are kind of really at the heart of this. This is not about the SASR as a whole. In a lot of ways, it was those members of the SASR that were the catalyst for this coming to light, for this reckoning to actually ever happen. That's right. I think it can't be lost in the story. And people who try, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation around this Ben Robert Smith story. And people like to say, oh, it's about the media trying to throw the military under the bus or attack the SAS. And that's not the case. At the heart of the story is about the good men of the SES, of who we can be so proud. Think about this. These guys who testified against Ben Robert Smith, they went and put their lives in the line over and over again in Afghanistan. They confronted 
the biggest personality in the regiment, the most famous, the most well-connected, and at times challenging Robert Smith, what are you doing to our younger guys? Pull your head in, mate. And then as the months and then years passed, uh, the moral shockiness of what he'd done to innocent civilians or prisoners, you know, the SAS does not execute prisoners, that began to tear at their moral conscience. And so not only had they suffered the trauma of war, they had experienced or sometimes even participated in shocking acts of war crimes because Ben Robert Smith either forced them to do that or they witnessed him do that. They carried that with them. And there was a burning desire for them to to have this exposed because by burying it, by covering it up, it was burning a a hole in their conscience. Some of those soldiers were criticised by other members of the SAS for, for giving their evidence, for speaking to journalists. But it strikes me that, yeah, and, and they were, they were criticised, I suppose, for, you know, talking outside the regiment and, and seeking to, to pull the regiment down. But it strikes me that, in a way, they may end up saving the SAS from itself. Well, yeah, I think so too. I, I think that they might have even saved the regiment. Uh, there was a damn good chance that the SAS would have been disbanded. I think it would have been if this scandal hadn't been, if, if you like, self-reported. It was the Inspector General's inquiry uh, initiated by the Defence Force that found out so much. And it was really a bunch of SAS soldiers that reported to their own superiors and ultimately spoke to the media who called it out. I think that made a phenomenal difference. It's sad, though, that uh, for all that, for having saved the regiment, a great many of them will never be forgiven. Because I think the ones that didn't have the moral courage to speak up take refuge in this proposition that the greater sin is talking to journalists than calling out war crimes. Some of the attitudes from some witnesses was illuminating of the attitudes that existed in some parts of the regiment and and certainly not not all SAS soldiers. But I, I remember Person 24 being in the stand and giving extraordinary evidence as having witnessed an execution by Ben Robert Smith, and he gave detailed evidence about about what he'd seen. And then he said, he turned to the court and said, but I don't know why I'm here under duress, and Ben Robert Smith is under duress. We were sent over there to kill bad dudes, and that's what we did. That seems to me to be an extraordinary position to hold. Yeah, yeah. It's one, one we'd heard even before that. I remember one of the sergeants saying, look, uh, you know, I've got no problems with us having executed those uh, Taliban guys who were detained, handcuffed, at uh, Whiskey 108 that day. My problem is that he forces someone else to do it, you know. There was anger about the murder of innocent civilians, but there was even greater anger about the bullying of younger soldiers into blooding civilians. The last thing they see is this the desperate look on the face of an Afghan as they blow his brains out. They go home with that. They can't live with it. They want to join the army and they want to end their career feeling proud of themselves and they don't. All of that is robbed from them. So they're very angry about it. Look, kicking Ali Jan off a cliff, he's unconscious at the bottom uh, they go down there, they drag him off towards a, an almond tree. He staggers to his feet. Uh, the, all this evidence, as you know, was given in court. Poignant, poignant, really heart-rending stuff. And then they, they shoot him dead. There was a, a couple of crimes that occurred that day. One was the death of an innocent farmer and the consequence to his family. The other was the toll on the conscience of the people who watched on uh, and couldn't live with it. And that's really why this whole matter occurred. Chris, you know 
I suspect more about the SAS and the way it operates than anybody outside of of the regiment. I'm really interested to understand how why this happened, how this happened, what what caused this sort of moral failure. I suppose was it to do with the asymmetric nature of the Afghan conflict? You're fighting a Taliban, you know, Talibs will bury their weapons and and you know pick up a plough or retreat to the mountains for the winter and you know come back out in the fighting season in spring. Was it to do with the nature of SAS operations, these small autonomous teams operating without very much oversight? Was it poor leadership? Was it these massive personalities at sort of patrol commander level? I mean, how do you think this this happened? I think that it it actually is all of those things. I think there wasn't a clear purpose in the mission in Afghanistan. The metric for success was pretty much stabilising the country so that Afghans might have the power to resist the Taliban themselves and and stabilise their nation. You know, you try to tell that to a bunch of Special Forces soldiers and they'll roll, roll their eyes. But that was the true mission. It was really about soft power. The Special Forces mission was all about hard power. It was going in, tip of the spear, taking out Taliban bomb makers and, and Taliban commanders, etc., etc. And uh, after a while, after 13 years of a confused mission, they pretty much lost the plot and it became about kill count. And I think that fed into the split personality of the regiment. In the beginning of the war, we talked much more about the shot not being fired as being much more important, you know, about the importance of courageous restraint. But then this other this other persona began to emerge, not just with the Australians, but I think with all of the special forces elements. And so getting into big gunfights was the sort of stuff that got them medals, got them fame, got them the recognition of their peers. And I think that there's always been a problem with SASR in that the experienced soldiers, particularly the ones with medals, really runs the joint. The officers that come in might only do one or two terms. They don't have anything like the experience. They're often younger. They even found a way to organisationally keep them at, at the rear. There was a a rule that wasn't even informal that was developed that said that, you know, you keep the officers out of the compound until the actions occurred because otherwise they'll just get in the way. This was the, a recipe for disaster. Because there's a lot of discussion at the moment around command responsibility and how high up the chain, I suppose, this needs to go. We've seen a trooper who's been formally charged, criminally charged. We know that Ben Robert Smith is being investigated. But how high up does that responsibility need to go? And are you sort of intimating there there's almost a willful blindness? I don't want to know. The command accountability issue is a hard one to deal with because I think Brereton was right when he said... I can not see clear evidence of complicity that any officers had direct knowledge of of war crimes. I know a lot of people roll their eyes at that, but remember, he's a lawyer. He needs evidence and he didn't see it. Nick McKenzie and I, we worked for years on this. We didn't really see it either. We're not saying that it's not there, but it's very hard to find and it's very hard to pin that accountability on anybody because so many of the officers who who were there have since left the army. They're not around anymore. There's only very few left that are there and who can be held accountable. And that becomes a little bit 
clumsy as as well. The other issue is whether or not they deserve their medals, you know, like the, the leadership medals that were given out, the Distinguished Service Crosses and Distinguished Service Medals, etc. And, I've, you know, they gave them out to the officers en masse. It's another reason why the other ranks are annoyed. These officers were giving themselves medals for, for conduct that we now find um, wanting. We've seen allegations against US Navy SEALs. Um, we, we're now witnessing a, a judicial inquiry in the UK into the action of the SAS and all of a sudden very similar allegations ca- coming to the fore. Why are these militaries, you know, representing liberal democracies supposedly in Afghanistan to bring peace and prosperity and, you know, the mission to, to win hearts and minds, why did it go so wrong for those special forces as well? I think you could argue that in these complex environments, the small war environment of Afghanistan and Iraq, that violence begats violence. It's almost like we're deploying the wrong army. You know, we need an army there to to keep the peace. Mm. We need peacekeepers rather than war fighters. We need war fighters as well. But I think we clearly got the mix wrong. How important is it for the Australian military, for the SAS, for the Australian people to reckon with what was done in Afghanistan by people in Australian uniforms with Australian money in Australia's name? How how important is it to go through that grim process that's going to take a number of years where we are consistently confronted by these allegations of war crimes? You know, the Australian military is a part of Australia's culture and identity ever since the Anzacs. It's in Australia's lifeblood. And with that, we must take the good with the bad because we don't want to attach ourselves to a lie or a myth. We must embrace the grim truth of the Ben Robert Smith scandal. But that's not all grim because at its core, the story is about the brave soldiers of the Special Air Service Regiment who stood up against war crimes, who remind the public that what it is to be in the Australian military and what it is to be a fighter in the finest most elite fighting force this nation has ever seen is to stand up for truth, for justice, and for civilians, and stand against war crimes, bullies, liars, and bastards. And that's a truth we should celebrate, despite all the grimness around it. What comes next? Well, the War Crimes Investigation Agency, the Office of the Special Investigator, contacted the court recently and the parties and said they want to lawfully, appropriately access all the evidence in the court case because they're investigating Ben Robert Smith. The great irony of the case that he brought is that now he's more likely to be criminally charged than he was before. Now, a long process to play out and ultimately he may never be charged and if he if he is, it's up to a jury of peers to decide his guilt or innocence. One of the men who lied on his behalf shot Ali Jan, the man kicked off the cliff at the bottom of the cliff under Robert Smith's directions. He's now a war crimes murder suspect. This will keep playing out for months and years, and I believe there will be prosecutions, not just of Ben Robert Smith, but of others. And I believe the nation, unfortunately, will be dealing with these grim realities for a long time to come. If you want to read more about this trial, and you want to hear more from Nick McKenzie and Chris Masters, they've both written books which recount this extraordinary defamation trial in fine detail from each of their perspectives. Crossing the Line by Nick McKenzie is published by Hachette. Flawed Hero, Truth, Lies and War Crimes by Chris Masters is published by Alan and Unwin. Both are available now. 
It should be noted, I've contacted Ben Robert Smith and his legal representatives seeking an interview for this podcast. At the time this podcast was published, I've not heard back. But now, Ben Robert Smith has lodged an appeal against the judgment in his defamation case. You can listen to all of our previous episodes about the trial by searching Ben Robert Smith versus the media in your podcast app. This episode was reported by me, Ben Doherty, produced by Miles Herbert, Camilla Hannon and James Milsom. Sound design and mixing by James Milsom. Executive produced by Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.